If you sometimes feel like everyone else is enjoying a five-star sharing platter in life while you're stuck with a single-serving portion of self-pity, you're not really alone. This podcast is for bringing together those who have found themselves at a table for one in life and digging into our own secret menu. In this first series, we're carrying on an open chat about what it's like to feel singled out as singles in society and how to cope, or more importantly, thrive. We're taking cues from art and astronomy, from surprising data, from people in history and people with unusual skills today, and of course, talk about food. I'm Whitney, and want to personally invite you to join our pod for a three-course meal of insight, relatable moments, and inspiration to leave you feeling full at the feast of life. This is Table for One. Episode 8. First face, best face. Hi, friends of the pod. When you're at a restaurant, how many times have your eyes lit up when your waiter set down your meal? A plate of cheesy fries that you've been craving all day, only to then look at the next table over and see a group of people feasting on some shared mixed seafood platter with faces of sheer delight like they're in some slow-mo commercial and think... They are so happy, I wish I could order what they're having. In the absence of comparison, your own dish is perfectly crunchy and cheesy and gooey, but suddenly somehow not satisfying. You'll push around the food on your own plate and smile in their direction, but their happiness somehow feels like a personal dig at you. Being at a table for one can be rewarding while we are there, but ultimately, we hope it is a temporary stop on the journey towards a more socially or romantically full life. As busy and focused as we are and thriving in whatever areas, there is always a part of us that is acutely aware of the relationship or social situation or success that we'd like in our lives but don't yet have. And because we're human, we can be prone to a little envy. And I speak from experience here. We all have our own unique coping mechanisms for this, but maybe the most common one is social masking or fake happiness. This side effect of loneliness isn't pretty and can lead to us spiraling down a hole that no one creates but ourselves. Why is it so hard to stop envying its tracks and feel genuine happiness for others sometimes? Why do we have to put on a mask in the first place? Before trying to answer that question, let's first take a little detour around the world into the history of masks for our first course. Masks have always been intriguing to me. As a teenager, I loved the Venetian-style masks that were a bedroom trend for girls in the early 90s. And my living room right now is a configuration of seven masks on the wall from various countries. And in the closet, I have four shiny Luta Libre masks at the ready for a random night of silliness and debauchery. I'm not sure exactly when my interest in masks began, but for most of us, we're exposed to the idea of them when we're young children at Halloween. My first experience wearing a mask was as the Pink Panther when I was three years old. This was the classic and cute molded plastic variety mask of the early 80s. But for anyone who has seen historical pictures of the first Halloween masks in the U.S. in the early 1900s, they were the serious, sinister stuff of nightmares. As we all know, 
Halloween originated with the Celtics hundreds of years ago, with All Souls Day, where costumes and masks were commonly worn so that the wandering spirits of this night wouldn't recognize those still on Earth. Irish and Scottish immigrants who came to America in the 1800s brought along this tradition. The mask wearing started to take off in the 1920s and 30s in the U.S., when companies like Halpern in Pittsburgh shifted the trend of dressing up as hideous demons and ghouls and instead kickstarted the commercialization of masks with pop culture characters of the time such as Popeye and Mickey Mouse. During these decades, Halloween increasingly became a night where people's behavior, along with their faces, was out of character. And by the 40s, the news referred to this night of anarchy as the Halloween problem. Today, obviously, Halloween costumes are a massive business. One of my most random job experiences in my lifetime was for two weeks selling Halloween costumes in a call center. Recent statistics show that 82% of households with kids in 2021 in the U.S. celebrated the holiday and spent $3 billion on costumes. Going back farther in history to the Middle Ages between the 12th and 16th centuries, Masks were an essential part of biblical dramas that were called mystery plays. These performances depicted stories like Adam and Eve or the creation. Although they started off as simple plays performed by churchmen, they evolved into elaborate, less religious productions. They became satirical, sometimes mocking physicians, judges, or priests. They were often organized into play cycles or groupings. Though one single French play in particular had 494 speaking parts, over 61,000 lines of rhymes, and took 40 days to perform. In England, these plays were performed on pageant wagons. The actors wore papier-mâché masks depicting devils, dragons, the seven deadly sins, including envy, no doubt, and were written to have been of high craftsmanship, with the masks articulating or emitting fire and smoke. In the middle of the Middle Ages on the other side of the world, no theater had arisen to such a significant part of Japanese culture in the Muromachi period, between the 13 and 1500s, that it was actually designated an intangible cultural heritage. No is the oldest of the three main types of Japanese theater and can be somewhat described as simplified opera, with no large sets or props and being performed on a plain square stage. Historic No utilized a classification of masks involving around 60 different types for performers to select while they were on stage and used to adopt different characters, more in the spiritual sense. These generally fall within the six categories of old man, elders masks, woman masks, man masks, demons, and ghosts and spirits. Within each of these are subtypes that depict different characters based on social class and other characteristics. Today in No, there are over 200 varieties of masks. The masks were typically made of cypress wood and colored with mineral pigments. But what is unique about them is that they were typically designed with a relatively neutral expression. It was up to the performers to fully express the intended emotion by using tiny movements or adjustments with the mask. Zayami, the most famous playwright in No's history, describes the theater's primary principle as mononame, or the imitation of things. The second principle, yugen, speaks to the idea of beauty only partially perceived, fully felt but barely glimpsed by the viewer. Going back in history even farther, Mask played a significant role in Greek culture and theater around 500 to 300 BC. As opposed to the no masks, 
The Greek ones were used to exaggerate expressions of the actors' characters. And they were used to help the voices project to farther seats in the audience, so that people could not only see the expression, but hear it. The masks allowed the actors to play more than one role or gender. They were made of tree bark or wood, linen, cork, and sometimes real hair, looking more lifelike for tragic plays and more grotesque for comedies. This is where the origin of the typical smiling and crying mask symbol that we associate with theater today came from. A researcher quotes that through its transformed world of mythical and fantastic characters and stories, theater forced the city of Athens to scrutinize both itself and the nature of human life. Even though it seems like in a few hundred years from now, the only anthropological evidence of masks in our society will be of COVID masks, we live in a time of daily digital masking of people using photo filters to hide or amplify who they really are or their experiences. I've done it. We've all done it. And there's proof. In 2017, Instagram took sample data from around 40 million posts and identified that 18% used an Instagram filter. But this doesn't take into account photos which have been manipulated in other programs outside of Instagram. A much smaller study of a few hundred women through the University of London's Gender and Sexualities Research Center surveyed that 90% of young women reported using filters or editing their photos before posting them online. Think of how embedded this is in our habits, our psyches, the adoption of a second face, as masks have often been referred to. Whether we're altering the reality of our appearance or curating our posts so much that they only reflect an ideal, they're a form of masking and skewing reality. Fake happiness on social media has been called performative happiness. So the mask metaphor feels particularly relevant here. And TikTok, as we know, is especially the pinnacle of this. Studies of research about the side effects of faking happiness. Some studies identify that while faking happiness on social media can make you temporarily happier, honest portrayals of yourself gains more support from friends, which results in a more lasting and meaningful boost to happiness. But other studies find a correlation between fake happiness and health problems ranging from depression to cardiovascular conditions. Let's return to the Middle Ages again with the mystery plays about the seven deadly sins and pivot back to the topic of envy. Envy has been described as a combination between admiration and discontent. For people at our tables for one, we can be especially prone to envy and focusing on the empty spaces at our table or experiences instead of our own individual feasts. A quote by Harold Coffin says, Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. As single or lonely people, we are ninjas at averting things that are difficult to confront on our own because we have full autonomy to confront or avoid whatever we want. The dirty dishes, our finances, the peloton. But we can often be surrounded by social triggers that remind us of the pain of being lonely or alone. And then everything bad comes up to the surface like couples who may first feel a pang of bitterness when hearing about a friend's pregnancy announcement after unsuccessfully trying to have a baby for months. For single people who desire romantic companionship, seeing a friend's wedding announcement or even attending a wedding can be a surprisingly bittersweet experience. Instead of just experiencing the beauty of the couple on their day, celebrating the full joy of their love, enjoying the perfection of the flowers or the wedding cake, we can't help but feel pangs of envy and be particularly reminded of how alone we are and how much we want the same experience for ourselves. In the movie Eat, Pray, Love, the character Richard from Texas says, 
Funny thing about weddings, they end up making you think about your own. Or in the case of Table for One folks, the weddings that we had that failed are the ones that haven't yet happened for us. Instead of genuine, unfiltered happiness for our friends, family, or acquaintances in these life celebrations, sometimes we cope by putting on a mask of happiness, the fake happiness, the second face, until we are alone in the safety of our homes and can relish in the envy and mental self-destruction. It takes real effort to filter the envy from our emotions about the experiences of others to only the positive ones. We think, why can't I be married? Why is it so hard for me to find someone? What did they do differently than I did in finding a partner? Me, me, me. But someone else's happiness doesn't have anything to do with or diminish our own personal journey in whatever phase we are at in satisfaction and happiness in our own lives. There's an illustration that I keep saved in my phone gallery and look at every once in a while. You're looking down at a guy in a suit juggling plates in the center of a stage in a fancy theater. You can see his back as he faces an enthralled audience. But the audience doesn't see what we see as the viewer, that the back of the stage leads down a long flight of stairs that are completely covered in the broken dishes of the juggler as he was practicing and honing his craft to be at a level to perform on stage. I'm not talking about anything new or revolutionary here in terms of having a different perspective, but now more than ever, thanks to globalization especially, we get an insight into the horrifying struggles of people around the world who have so much to surmount. Refugees, climate crises wiping out food sources, extreme poverty of a huge percent of the world's population. But by default, we see what we want with people that we think we relate to or want to relate to. Like when looking at the juggler, we don't appreciate the journey that people experienced on their way to the altar, for example. The dozens of bad dates, the crippling self-doubt, potential trauma of past abuses, the time and energy that person spent getting up over and over again to be the best person they could and be ready or worthy of the perfect person for them. We only see that moment of bliss. We forget that bliss is temporary and that the super shiny, newly married couple like all couples, will still have ugly arguments in their future, moments of feeling alone and disconnected in their relationship, maybe financial or health struggles that are kept behind closed doors, etc. How can we genuinely be happy for others during their bliss moments? Think of the no masks again and the first principle of the imitation of things. Think of your own life and the particular happy experiences of others that you found yourself imitating happiness for putting on a smile that is too strained and tight, where your hug of congratulations was more like an act of passive suffocation, where the most Herculean effort in the universe was to raise your pointer finger a millimeter and click the like button on somebody's post. What is the particular experience that got to you? We've already mentioned weddings and pregnancy announcements. We can tag in gender reveal parties here too. Was it the announcement of someone landing an exciting new job, just when you're feeling like your career is at a dead end? Was it someone's post about an exotic vacation when you haven't been able to afford even a staycation? Was it seeing someone after a long time who is now at their ultimate peak fitness when you're at your worst weight? Was it seeing the walkthrough video of a friend's beautiful 4,000 square foot house complete with fire pit and puppy in the backyard when you know that you'll be paying rent in smile apartments for years to come? These are just some examples of the big moments of bliss that may tempt our envy, but it can be smaller scale too, or exclusive of an event altogether. Maybe we're envious of someone's contentedness generally, those people who have a rainbow aura and are always smiling when we see them. We'd all love to be that person. 
but we're so busy digging a hole for all the things we think we want, but don't yet have. But the key thing I want to drill home here is that each of us have very likely been the object of someone else's envy trigger at some point too. If we can build a foundation of genuine happiness for others, ditch the second face and put our best first face forward, envy doesn't have a chance. It's true that the fake it till you make it approach of smiling and nodding for someone else's happiness is done with the best intentions, but this is a baby step towards developing authentic joy that isn't easily shaken. Faking happiness causes damage to us, as well as the people in our circles of friendship. Let's talk about two key tools to tackle your triggers. That was a lot of tease. <laughs> the first is grow and cement the gratitude for what you have. Seems simple, right? Gratitude is a preventative measure to envy. When you're happy with what you have, you're unfazed by different experiences of happiness around you. I've got a pop culture parable for you, this time from 20 years ago. Frasier is probably one of my top three favorite shows, and I have no shame about being able to quote all 200 plus episodes. One of the most hilarious episodes for me is centered around a top secret invitation-only day spa in Seattle. It's only known to society as elite, the Golden Door Spa. Frasier and his brother Niles are both lovable snobs, extremely successful, semi-famous in their professions, and will throw out cash on only the finest experiences. When they learn that their nemesis neighbor got an invitation to a spa that they hadn't even heard about, their envy kicks into full gear and they find a way to sneakily get an appointment. After their first euphoric spa session, they are deliriously happy. Niles remarks that he felt like he was massaged by angels, but they notice a senator passing by and crossing into a private access door in the spa. The spa attendant tells them that this is the door for their platinum members, the Platinum Door Spa. Suddenly, the Golden Door Spa doesn't seem good enough, and Fraser, desperate for the allure of the Platinum Door, describes it to his colleague as a hellhole. The envy kicks in again, and they find a way to book an appointment at this extra-exclusive experience in the Platinum Spa. Finally, they find themselves in the relaxation grotto of this Platinum Spa, having had experiences of Nirvana with their latest treatments when they spot... Yep, a third secret access door. Once again, what they have is suddenly diminished, and they take matters into their own hands to see what's on the other side. In their bathrobes and face masks and cucumber eye patches, they burst through the door, and blinking into the sunshine, realize that they found themselves in the back alley of the spa with the dumpsters, and have locked themselves out of the building. Ah, it's hilarious. And we know where I'm going with this, that in the history of time, there has never been anything good for us on the other side of envy. Gratitude is a conscious practice. It helps me to remind myself that if I have a place to live, a job to pay my bills, am healthy, and likely have at least one more day on earth to live and have another chance of creating the life that I want, that I have everything. These are reasons to genuinely be happy. An important thing to point out here is that we'll experience more satisfaction if we can identify these positives without any comparison to others. In psychology, social comparison theory speaks to the innate drive that we all have to evaluate ourselves, usually in relation to others. Some psychologists believe that we go through this comparison process as a way of establishing a benchmark to more accurately evaluate ourselves. And there's two approaches of doing it, either upward or downward comparison. 
Upward comparison is the root of envy, when we compare ourselves to people that we think have it better than us. Downward comparison is when we compare ourselves to people we think are worse off to make us feel better about ourselves. Neither approach, of course, is entirely healthy if unchecked. But to be grateful for what we have, we have to find gratitude exclusive of wherever we fall on the invisible baseline of happiness. Typically during the month of November, to celebrate Thanksgiving, there are social media trends of voicing something that you're grateful for every day on your posts. Some people spend a few hours writing a comprehensive list of all the things that they're grateful for and keep it stashed in their nightstand. Whatever your approach, try to think about something that you're grateful for daily and integrate it. The second tool to tackle envy is to identify your diversion tactics. Sometimes the envy can seep in before we even recognize it. But when we do, there are reactive measures to take as well to keep us from diverting off course from contentment. One approach is called elective ignoring and distracting. When you're faced with your trigger, when the spotlight is on an achievement or celebration of someone else, remind yourself the other person's advantage isn't important in the grand scheme of things. Instead of zooming in on the intensity of that moment of bliss through a microscope, imagine yourself zooming out to bird's eye view or space station view and look at the tininess of the moment and the balance of the big picture of life and its huge variations of ups and downs. If you feel like you've started spiraling down a slide or a hole of social comparison, Keep a mental balloon on reserve in your pocket to help you float out. Keep a few go-to memories of times where you were experiencing an advantage, or focus on something simple in your life currently that brings you an automatic smile to your face. The kisses of your dog, a favorite dress, or a particular garden that you find beautiful as you walk to work. Think of these memories like a code word, like when you're at a bad party with a friend and want to instantly coordinate an escape. Another diversion tactic is to turn the envy landmine into a learning experience to help you progress towards the achievements that you desire. Instead of grimacing congratulations when you hear about a colleague's significant promotion, ask to set up a coffee with him sometime to learn about the steps that they took to make it happen. If a friend just came back from an amazing vacation, ask them how they made it happen and tap them for tips as you plan for your own next getaway. Contrary to movies, and remembering the illustration of the juggler, good things don't usually just happen to people. They take strategy and work, and they can happen to you too. For dessert today, we're going to focus on deliberate baking. A Spanish proverb tells us that envy is thin because it bites but never eats. So, since we all love food... Today's exercise is about using dessert to genuinely celebrate and feed the happiness or achievement of someone else in your circle of friends, particularly someone that you feel like you've worn a mask of happiness for. Happiness is contagious. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, happiness is a perfume that you can't pour on others without getting a few drops on yourself. The best way to get over envy is to take yourself out of the picture completely, turn selfishness into selflessness. Think about one of those particular trigger moments in your life socially. Think about the person who was experiencing that moment of bliss and their particular achievement and literally bake a dessert to give to this person to celebrate it. Think of what they would enjoy or appreciate the most, the flavors, the way it's decorated. Baking is a great exercise because it's intentional, methodical, and takes a little time and effort, 
all a great combination for directing our focus mentally and physically on happiness for the recipient of your treats. Again, it's not about you. In fact, you don't even get to taste the dessert. Again, it's about celebrating happiness that exists exclusively of your own experience. If the person doesn't live near you, still go through the exercise and share the dessert with someone else on their behalf, a neighbor or a colleague. And guess what? This is not only a cleansing experience to build genuine happiness within you, but making that effort can contribute to deepening the relationship with that person and enjoying them at your table for one more frequently. For this exercise, let's think of baking as its own love language. Similar to the approach of different types of flowers being given based on their different meanings, yellow roses for friendship, red roses for love, pink roses for appreciation. Here's my not-so-scientific suggestion on how best to celebrate someone in your life with sugar to help kickstart your creativity and deliberate baking. To celebrate someone's engagement, let's bake something fun and light that you can give just a few of because you know they want to fit into that wedding dress. Cupcakes. Pineapple upside down cakes with cherry frosting are on my personal to-do list. To celebrate a friend's new job or promotion, it's gotta be cookies, so they can share them with their new colleagues and win them over. Since there's a few weeks of summer left, I propose chocolate chip s'mores cookies. To celebrate a friend's new home, create a birthday cake for the house itself. For this one, I'm going with a chocolate Guinness cake with Irish cream frosting and sprinkles. To celebrate a friend's pregnancy or baby announcement, bake a set of mini cheesecakes for her to be able to freeze and keep on hand for future cravings. Chocolate-covered strawberry cheesecakes would make me smile. And lastly, to celebrate a friend's special recognition or award of any kind, bake a pie. For this one, Let's ditch the bar and make them a key lime mojito pie to cheer to instead. Check out some of these recipes on the Insta page this week. Whatever envy that you're struggling with, hopefully this episode helps you recognize when you're wearing that mask of fake happiness and how to give it up for genuine joy and putting your first face, best face forward. Save the mask for Halloween. Thanks for joining me. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe or join the Instagram page at tableforone.pod, where you'll find resources shared from each episode along with other fun content. And feel free to send me a message. Introduce yourself. Share a favorite recipe. Let me know a topic about loneliness that you'd like me to cover. Whatever. And remember, no matter who is or isn't at your table, there's a live feast available for you. See you in two weeks.